The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Vinnie Politan, and welcome to the Court TV Podcast. This week, we have another audio edition of the Court TV original series, Someone They Knew, with Tamron Hall. If you'd like to see more episodes, you can watch them on demand on our website. Just check the show notes for the link. This is Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. This is the Court TV Podcast. The fire consumed David Coffin's buckhead home like it was paper. Got a call from the fire department that there was a body inside. David Coffin, he was the victim. They looked at people who might have had some grudge against David Coffin. Fire can be the tool for the rage. It can be the tool for the murder. Every murder comes down to one or two things. It's either profit or a passion. The acoustic of the phone. You're killing me. On the night of December 10th, 1996, the Atlanta Fire Department responded to a call at a home that was engulfed in flames in the upscale neighborhood of Buckhead. Inside, they found the body of a man and called police to the scene. Detectives suspected foul play, but it would be years before they could make their case. Well, the, the story begins with um, the son of a very, very prominent um, psychiatrist in town. Dr. Dave Davis was kind of the, the guru of forensic psychiatrists in Georgia. And his son, Scott Davis, um, his wife had just recently left him, Megan, and um, he was very distraught about it. They ended up separating. Uh, and during the separation, uh, she started dating an individual by the name of David Coffin. Well, the Coffins were from uh, old money, you know, gold Connecticut money. Uh, his family was one of the first companies ever traded on the New York Stock Exchange, that gold money. Hey, David, a little troublemaker. Uh, let me in the shower. David and, and, and Megan, though I think they were very early on in their relationship, you know, she seemed to like him a lot, and he seemed to like her a lot. Megan was a Scott Davis's estranged wife at the time. They'd been married uh, for like two years, and she filed for divorce. Uh, and she had been introduced to David Coffin, and they were having a relationship that had become intimate. Basically, she was not yet divorced from her, from Scott. Um, Scott found out that uh, Megan was dating uh, David, and uh, I just sent the whole thing into motion. The acoustic of the phone. Look, I don't want to argue, I don't want to fight. Just please pick up the phone. Scott Davis called her repeatedly. He tried to make it appear that he was okay, uh, that he understood the separation, but it was clear from his actions that he was not uh, satisfied. And at the time, he had warned her uh, not to become intimate with anyone. I worked at nights at the time. There was a, a, fire, a house fire, which is not an uncommon occurrence, but this was on West Conway Drive. 
which is one of the streets that has a bunch of large and very expensive homes on it. We got a call from radio that the fire department was out on a fire and that there was a body inside and it's suspicious nature. The place is ablaze, it's a pretty serious fire. So they think it's arson from the get-go just because it spread so quickly. We found out that David Coffin, he was the victim. He was the body that was found inside the house. The fire consumed David Coffin's buckhead home like it was paper. The speed of the fire leads investigators to believe it was set. The body was laying on its back, and in fires when people die, they generally are trying to crawl out of the house or underneath the smoke, and so usually are found dead on their stomach. Megan shows up, and she's hysterical. She's seen it on the news. Megan calls Scott, and Scott tells me, he says, oh, my God, somebody just tried to set my house on fire. My reaction was, really? Well, there's a clue. Let's go. We get there, and he says, well, I was in, in the house, sitting in a recliner, and my dog started barking. And he says, so I grabbed my shotgun. He goes outside to find somebody starting a fire on his stone patio. He uh, says the guy, the person, shoots at him, and he has a shotgun in which he fires uh, five times. And, but doesn't apparently hit the person that he's shooting at. And the person hopped over a fence, escaped. Earlier in the evening, he had been attacked by an intruder in his house. And Maester, he says the person, tells him to stay away from Megan. So at this time, I'm like, okay, I got bullshit going on here. And uh, so just put him in the car. I said, yeah, you might come down and give us a statement because it's all related. And so uh, how Megan and uh, David getting along? I don't know. I know they're going out, so that's all I know. When he started to tell them about the, um, the incident that took place with somebody shooting at him, it occurred to the police that, whoa, maybe we need to advise this guy of his rights because he seems like he is a good suspect. Says he goes, man, he says, I didn't shoot him. I'm like, well, okay. Well, I didn't say you did. Nobody knew at that point that he'd been shot. There's only one person who knows he was shot, and that's the shooter. You did say that David was shot. I think that. You think so? I think I did. I mean, like I said, when, when, I, when I heard that from her, that's what, you know, I thought, I thought I heard. He said, I think Megan told me. He said, of course, we'll go out and find Megan and Megan's like, is that how he died? I, you know, she didn't know. So at that time, yes, he was my number one suspect, but I took him home, right? Because I want to do an investigation. Because you, you never know. You try to stay away from getting tunnel vision. Hey, Megan, it's 8 o'clock. I just got back from the police station. Uh, and uh, students were really getting in my face telling me um, that they thought I had when the police, they believed that the victim was already dead at the time of the fire and that the fire may have been set to destroy the evidence. The clues that we look for in an arson investigation are relatively the same clues for any kind of case. You want to develop a motive. You want to, you want to know what person had the means, manner, and opportunity to commit this crime. So what you start looking at is you look at background information. They looked at people who 
might have had some grudge against David Coffin. Uh, he was a um, sort of the ladies' man, and so they were looking at other uh, husbands or boyfriends who might have been upset uh, with um, the way that he conducted himself. And so Scott Davis was just one of the people that they were talking to who fit within the same parameter. My initial theory is that, you, you know, every, <laughs> every murder comes down to one or two things. It's either profit or, 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 or a passion, you know? Fire is not a good way to cover your tracks. Um, it, all it does, it may make things um, more difficult, but it doesn't erase anything. It was clear to see that he was really obsessed with her and he was not going to accept her leaving him and he certainly wasn't going to accept the fact that she was sleeping with someone else. The raging blaze destroyed much of the physical evidence at David Coffin's home. There were no fingerprints at the scene or witnesses to the crime. With little to go on, detectives zeroed in on their prime suspect. When this case first started, when the, uh, literally, literally the very next day, I called the Fulton County District Attorney's Office because I knew who Scott's father was and uh, I knew the political ramifications. Dave Davis, who had good relationships with the police and the DA's office, often testified for them in certain cases. It made it quite difficult that, that Dave was his father. People uh, transferred to Scott Davis the credibility of his father. But it was clear from those who might have known Dave and his son that Scott Davis was a completely different kind of person. Now, talking about the Coffin case, I've talked enough about the Coffin case, we're still investigating. Lieutenant Charles Turner walked inside to work. His detectives have been beating some well-groomed bushes around Atlanta's Conway Drive in Buckhead. By its very nature, fire destroys. Now, you ask any criminal investigator, what does he want on his crime scene? He wants to be pristine. So what do you have when you have a fire? You have the fire doing whatever it's gonna do, whether it's gonna cause some structural collapse, it's gonna destroy certain things. Well, as far as a homicide scene, there is no, no tougher one than, than, than an arson or a fire scene. In the initial story that Scott told us, you're just building layers of circumstantial evidence on top of it. You know, you're just building a brick wall. We spent a lot of time talking to uh, Megan, uh, his estranged wife. She supplied uh, a number of emails and letters from Scott Davis. And it was clear to see that he was really obsessed with her. And he was not going to accept her leaving him. And he certainly wasn't going to accept the fact that she was sleeping with someone else. I want to talk about this stuff and get it over with. Megan, please pick up the phone. Just do me a favor and talk to me. The weekend preceding David's death, um, David was at Megan's house on Saturday night, spent the night. Um, David comes home Sunday, finds his house has been burglarized. Police say a break-in at the home just days before Tuesday's fire could be connected to the killing. Coffin's Porsche was stolen. Police found it in DeKalb County. And like the home, it had been torched. We found out that one of the people who lived in the same neighborhood, Scott Davis, tried to convince them to tell the police that on the day that the burglary took place, 
that they were together in a gymnasium. And he said that simply was not true. So I started looking at the house. He goes, what are you looking for? So I'm trying to see where the bullet hit. You know, we can find a bullet fragment, right? We were going over his whole story again and, you know, nitpicking little things that you know aren't right. You know, when the guy, when he tried to carjack, he was trying to rob him. He set your clothes on fire and runs across the backyard, jumps the fence and gets away. Again, that was my reaction. Really? Hey, Dan, hey, let's see my lawyer in a minute. Uh, I want to talk to you about, uh, about what's going on and what you said to these people. I need you on my side in this case, but I'm really fine. This person who's doing all this, please, please call me. The DA's office said, I think you've got enough. So we put it all in an arrest warrant. Um, judge signed it. Uh, I called Scott's lawyer, said, Hey, we got an arrest warrant. He come turn himself in. Mr. Davis walked up with his attorney, and he was carrying one of those old paper cups of coffee from McDonald's. What struck me was the level of calmness and really serenity it would take to ask the lawyer to you know, pull over, we're gonna stop in here and I'll get myself a coffee before I go in so I'm, I'm comfortable for this maybe last stage of my freedom. Scott Davis had a prominent group of lawyers. They asked the court to release him on bond. Probably at that time, the courts released about 40% of the defendants who were charged with bond. So we were not surprised that the court just finally let him out on bond. Detective Chambers very quickly decided, and Scott Davis, he was the perpetrator. I mean, within hours, actually. And um, got some taped statements of him, Mirandai statements. And, um, but then the case kind of stopped. It just stalled. Um, he was arrested. There was a warrant taken out. They didn't indict. We get him arrested. He makes bond. I get told by one of the... Uh, 88s, that uh, they're not going forward with the case. <laughs> that uh, they just don't think there's enough. One of the jobs of the DA, in, in my estimation, is to evaluate cases, put together a trial team, and go forward. Well, when we evaluated this case, there simply was not enough evidence to convince a Fulton County jury. It wasn't a pretty scene. I was not happy. Um, but I, I, I'll just I'll just leave it at that. It was it was not it was it was not nice. Uh, I mean, the words coming out of my mouth and towards him was were not nice. But eight years later, Sheila Ross calls me, says, "Oh, we're gonna reopen the David Comcast." I said, "Not with me. You're not." With charges against Scott Davis dropped, the case went cold, very cold. Detectives simply had no other viable suspects. It seemed that David Coffin Jr.'s murder would go unsolved until a bizarre turn of events in California. After the case is dropped, Megan moves to um, Minnesota and eventually to Australia. Scott moves to Palo Alto, California. 
He's in business out there as a technology consultant, but he's always had political ambitions. I remember one of my lawyers came in and said to me, you, you would not believe this, Mr. Howard. So the guy's running for governor. I said, governor of what? And they said he's running for governor of California. And so, you know, of course, we look on the Internet and there he is. He's running for governor in the recall. And uh, it was just unbelievable that he would put himself out in that fashion. We were just amazed. It was him and Gary Coleman and the, the porn star. And the, that was the Schwarzenegger election. At that time, you thought you'd beat a murder rap, right? You think you would just go lay low. You know, just go out there, just go somewhere and just lay low, make your money and, and be done, you know? Go on. No, no. Scott, he couldn't. He ran for governor and, you know, <laughs> they're still in the, until <laughs> they found out he, he'd been charged with murder in Atlanta. David Coffin's father, David Coffin Sr., had never given up on the case. I mean, one of the reasons I'm really sure Paul Howard went after it again, was I'm sure he's being lobbied pretty heavily by David Coffin Sr. We believe that there are some people in the Atlanta area who are still holding information about this case. The uh, district attorney says this man, 39-year-old Scott Davis, remains the prime suspect in the murder. When the DA's office started to reinvestigate this matter, Sheila Ross was head of that cold case squad. In my estimation, she is one of the top lawyers in the entire United States. But eight years later, Sheila Ross calls me, says, oh, we're going to reopen the David Coffin case. I said, not with me, you're not. I said, I'm not going through all that again and, and just for it to get shot down again. She goes, no, it's different this time, I promise you. I said, Sheila. I said, really? She goes, yeah. I said, okay. The first chance, first time I see that it's going sideways, that they were wasting our time, I said, I'm out the door. Sheila put together a group, uh, including Rick Chambers, to go out to uh, California to um, start interviewing the witnesses again. They were going to set up a wiretap to hopefully catch him saying something incriminating. Of course, he's not talking, right? So, so I tickle a wire. So what's going to call tickle a wire? Get him talking about what you want him to talk about. I walked by his house, and I just stopped, stood in front of his house. He looks out the window, sees me. And I just look at him for a second. I just turn around, keep walking. Well, he gets on the phone, sure enough, talking, you know. Um, I saw that Rick Chambers, the cop from Atlanta. Here, I don't know why he's doing that. He's standing out front of my house, you know. I wouldn't get nothing out that far. And one of the things that uh, the investigators located was James Dawes, the private investigator hired by Scott Davis to locate the boyfriend of his estranged wife, Megan. When we located him and asked him to come before the grand jury, Mr. Goss actually said to us, he said, I want to testify because I know that he did it. He was arrested Friday morning in Palo Alto and he has been charged with murder in Atlanta, Georgia, and he will face uh, charges, their extradition charges, tomorrow morning in a court in, um, in Santa Clara County. The grand jury indicted him. So eventually he's arrested, he's extradited, he comes back to Georgia. And so now we're years later, um, and they're going to pursue this time uh, a full prosecution. 
It's a classic case, I would say, in which circumstantial evidence is somewhat overwhelming. After we arrested him the second time, and, you know, I said, Scott, come on, you had to know the state was coming. I don't decide guilt or innocence, but there's a lot of evidence that's gone missing. Much of the physical evidence gathered and safeguarded by the state has been lost or destroyed. It gives a list. So I thought, this is really bizarre. This is really weird. Several of the prosecutors believe that we would get laughed out of court because we'd lost the evidence. Boils down to credibility. His credibility compared to Megan's credibility. How can a grown man die of fire when he's awake? The trial of Scott Davis began nearly 10 years after David Coffin Jr. was killed. He was facing life in prison for murder. Yet the prosecution had no witnesses, fingerprints, or DNA. But the case was built on other evidence. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, you've been sworn and impaneled, and you're about to try a criminal case entitled The State of Georgia versus Scott Davis. At this time, I'm going to allow the state to make its opening statement. On December 10th, 1996, David Coffin Jr. was shot one time in the left side of his head with a nine millimeter handgun. He was shot in his own kitchen. The next day, someone came back. Someone, the same person that shot him in the head and doused his body and his kitchen with gasoline burned him and his house, destroying everything that he had. His most valuable asset, his life. The man that took that from David Coffin, sitting right there, the defendant, Scott Davis. And I ask you, after you've considered all the evidence presented, all of the witnesses and the testimony, that you find the only verdict that is appropriate in this case, and that is guilty of the murder of David L. Coffin, Jr. Scott Davis is not guilty. He tells you by his plea of not guilty that he did not commit these crimes, and there is no evidence that he did. You just heard a fascinating story, but you're here to look at, evaluate, and determine if there is evidence of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. There is no evidence that Scott Davis ever went to the home of David Coffin. None. There are no fingerprints. There is no fiber evidence linking Scott Davis to any of these crimes. There is no DNA evidence linking him to any of these crimes. There is no hair evidence. There is no blood evidence. There's no witness. But the evidence that existed in this case, what evidence there was, has been destroyed by the police or lost by the police, and I don't have that evidence. I can't take it and answer the questions for you. I cannot do that. They've prevented me from doing that, either by design or by ineptitude, whichever it was, I can't do it. They lost it, destroyed it, or never even investigated it. Several of the prosecutors believed that we would get laughed out of court because we'd lost the evidence. 
But if you were going to try a case, a difficult, complex case, why would you want to get rid of the evidence? It would seem that the state in this case would want to keep the evidence. Nobody from the police department would have got rid of it. We had no reason to destroy it and get rid of it, right? None of us. The fingerprints that were taken from the Porsche destroyed. The Porsche itself gone. The Beretta that the state claims is the murder weapon gone. The complete absence of care taken to preserve evidence with what was still an ongoing open case during all those years. The problem with that whole theory was that you'd have to prove that they did it intentionally, that the police intentionally destroyed favorable evidence. We couldn't prove that. Ms. Tate, you know the spell for me to work It's um, Megan Bruton. Megan's testimony was absolutely powerful. She made it real, she made it palpable. Previously admitted into evidence of State's Exhibit 4, so that we are clear for the record, do you recognize the person in State's Exhibit 4? That's Pam Kaufman, Jr. Take a moment. Is that the person that you were dating? It was, yes. Did the defendant become aware that you were dating Dave? Um, yes, and he asked that I stop seeing David, and I said no. Sheila Ross had to show that Scott was obsessed with Megan. She does that uh, through emails, texts, you know, phone records. Friday night, December 6th of 1996, did you hear from the defendant that night? I did. Can you tell us when and how? Um, it started calling in the middle of the night. He was crying and saying, is David with you? I know David's with you. After midnight on December 8th, 1996, estimate how many times he called you between 12 a.m. and 8 a.m. I would probably say 35. Megan, please pick up the phone. Megan, please pick up the phone. Come on, please. Megan, please pick up the phone. Megan, I love you. I just want to talk to you. Please pick up the phone. You're killing me. He kept wanting to get back with her. He was very obsessed with Megan. And especially once she, uh, she kept demanding the divorce. He hated to lose. He hated to be told no. And, uh, and then... He did his deed. Fire can be the tool for the rage. It can be the tool for the for the murder. Megan you know, arrives at the house and be told that uh, David had died. I remember being pretty hysterical, falling to the ground, um, lying on the pavement, asking him, how can a grown man die of fire when he's awake? And he said he didn't die of the fire. And what did you do after that? I called Scott. I just remember saying, David's dead, somebody burned his house down. And I could hear in the background radio, like walkie-talkie kind of things. And he said, oh my God, the police are here with me. And they said they had just come from a scene in Buckhead where a guy had been shot in the head and his house had been burned down. The evidence against Scott Davis is that he said, you know, to the police officer, I didn't shoot David. 
which he shouldn't have known the cause of death. He says he talked to Megan on the telephone and Megan told him that. You placed a phone call to Jennifer Jenikova. At one point in the evening, yes. And you said to her, oh my God, David has been shot in the head and his house burned down, didn't you? That's what she recalls, yes. I believe I did say it to her. You did not tell Jennifer Jenikova Scott Davis told you anything about anybody being shot in the head, did you? No, because at the time, I felt that he was relaying information from the police that were at his house. At the time, you didn't tell her that because Scott didn't tell you that. Scott did tell me that. The case boils down to credibility. His credibility compared to Megan's credibility. If you're a, a reasonable, logical type person in any sense whatsoever, you realize that this whole story that he concocted just makes no sense. You know, again, the aha moment uh, for the jury was the, 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 the audio tape of the interview. Uh, I'd be happy to say that. Uh, I mean, you, you did say that David was shot. I think that. Maybe one of us, they told you that. Wow. It was a terrible slip up on, on Mr. Davis's part, if in fact he's guilty. Next on the stand was Detective Rick Chambers, who would present the state's key piece of evidence. That was the audio interview between police and Scott Davis in the early morning hours of December 11th, 1996. Detective Chambers, uh, I believe you testified that you uh, tape recorded uh, the interview at the point Detective Walker came back, is that right? That's correct. And at this time, Your Honor, the state would uh, wish to play that interview. So uh, how was Megan and uh, David getting along? I don't know. I know they were going out, so that's all I know. I, I wouldn't you really love your wife. I love her, yeah. Y'all trying to get back together. Mm -hmm. The truth. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. I think she, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I've seen them with someone else. No. Scott Davis, in my opinion, had lost control of his emotions. When he could not control the situation, he lost control. incredibly damaging evidence that he thought he was talking his, himself out of it. It was a terrible slip-up on, on Mr. Davis's part, if in fact he's guilty. Am I being um, arrested here? Arrested? Yeah, am I being arrested now? No. I mean, you know. I mean, because I feel like 
I'm, I'm been the victim here, and I feel like I'm the one that's being accused of all this. And you didn't go to this house. No. Y'all didn't get in an argument. No. About, about Megan. No. And you didn't go confront him about dating Megan. No. Okay, so I've been doing this a lot of years. There's certain things people do when they're telling a lie. They can't stop it. They can't stop it. They can't keep from doing it. Well, you're wrong, so I don't know what else to say. They can't keep from doing it. Well, you're wrong. Everybody thinks they're smarter than the police. You know, we're just dumb cops, you know? That's how we are. And, uh, but I had my sights on him right, but right after he told me that incredible story. During the morning of December 11, you focused on Scott Davis as the perpetrator of this homicide, didn't you? Yes, sir, I did. And you accused him of lying to you in some of the statements he had made, didn't you? Yes, sir. And at this point in time, you are to use the vernacular, being the bad cop, correct? I don't believe I was being a bad cop, no, sir. You are a attempting to intimidate Mr. Davis, aren't you? I was simply trying to gather the facts. You deny that your purpose was to intimidate him and panic him? I deny that I, my purpose was to intimidate. I was not intended to intimidate him. How about panic, panic him? Panic him, maybe. Okay, yeah. okay. If you're a, you're a cop and, and you've got a good case, right? And you know you've got a good case. What's a defense attorney going to do? He's not going to attack the case, right? Because because he can't win the case. So what, do you, what does he do? He attacks the detective. Was the protocol followed in this case with the evidence in DeKalb County? DeKalb County destroyed the evidence. They were asked to preserve it, and they destroyed it. When did they destroy it? I believe it was, I'm not sure, I believe 2001, I think, maybe. When did you find out? When we, when Miss Ross... Uh, said that we were starting the investigation again. That was 2005? Yes, sir. So from 1996 to 2005, you had no idea what DeKalb County was doing with the evidence? No, sir. What happened to everything else? I do not know, sir. Do you have any record that Atlanta property <clears throat> received and maintained that evidence? No, sir. None? None. Nothing? Nothing. The stuff just disappeared. There's a lot of sloppiness. If you're really cynical, you'd think that the prosecution and the police were hiding the evidence, destroying it because it was exculpatory, that it favored the defense, so they wanted to get rid of it. Unlikely, in my opinion. My name is David Coffin. This story was the story of two dads. In a lot of ways, he had, he had Dave Davis and David Coffin Sr., who have been, you know, very prominent in the uh, in the whole uh, saga? When is the last time you spoke to your son, David? I spoke to him the weekend of Thanksgiving. At some point, Mr. Coffin, did you establish a reward for information regarding the death of your son? I did. And why did you establish a reward fund? To try to help the case move along. I'm sure the case would have gone away, uh, except for David Coffin Sr., because he was so prominent and so involved. Did you talk to the police on the 12th? Or any other day? Yes. Detective Chambers, and it was early in the morning. Detective Chambers told you something. Is that right? Yes. 
What did you say in response to what Detective Chambers said to you? I said, let me speak to Scott. He's in the room. Did you speak to Scott? I did. What did you say to Scott? I said, Detective Chambers is on the phone. Detective Chambers says that he has proof positive that you killed David Coffin. Detective Chambers said that you might kill me tonight, that my life is in danger, and that I had better lock my door if I'm not going to bring you in. Did you bring him in? No. Did, in, did anyone other than Detective Chambers request that you bring him in? No. Scott Davis's father, Dave Davis, I have the utmost respect for the man. I really do. But in all these years, there's never been another. There's never been anybody else can come, come to the forefront. There's no doubt in my mind Scott Davis killed David Collins. You know, the defense had every reason to think they might win that case. Have you reached the verdict? Yes, we have, Defendant, please rise. Although the state had presented a convincing case, they had lost an enormous amount of physical evidence. And what they did have was purely circumstantial. If the defense could convince the jury that there was reasonable doubt, Scott Davis would walk free. At the end of this week, it'll be December 2006. It has been 10 years since this defendant executed David Coffin in the privacy of his own home. It's been 10 years since he poured gasoline on his body and set him on fire. And the evidence has shown in this trial that for 10 years, he has gotten away with murder. A lot of things have happened in those 10 years. Megan, one of the first witnesses you heard from in this case, she's remarried, moved out of the country, has a family, two young boys. Sergeant Chambers, who was a detective in homicide in 1996, is now a supervisor in the sex crimes division. The defendant himself moved out to California, lived in La Vida Loca for the last 10 years. But David Coffin still remains in his grave. And for 10 years, his family has waited for justice. We had presented the case. The way that I felt is we had done our jobs. We looked at Megan and we looked at Scott Davis and we looked at what had happened in this fire and David Coffin getting shot. And we believed that the jurors would ultimately find the truth. Scott comes into this courtroom with a presumption of innocence. That's the rule. Presumption of innocence is like a suit of armor. It surrounds Scott from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And the prosecution has to marshal in evidence. It's their burden of proof. That's the next principle. And it lays right here, the prosecution table. And they have to put in such convincing proof that there is no more armor on Scott. He has to be naked. So if there's some armor on his elbow, the verdict is not guilty. If there's some armor on his knee, the verdict is not guilty. He must be totally removed from that <coughs> presumption of innocence by the most compelling evidence we know. 
evidence that satisfies your mind beyond a reasonable doubt. You have one reasonable doubt. You knock on the door, the verdict's not guilty. I mean, there was a reasonable doubt aspect to the case. I mean, you couldn't really deny it. The defense had every reason to think they might be win that case. I mean, they really did. I mean, it was really thin. I mean, it's literally, you have to convict him based on the word of an estranged wife. Maybe see you. <clears throat> have you reached the verdict? Yes, we have, Defendant, please rise. Mr. Four Person, will you please read your verdict? Your Honor, on this uh, fourth day of December 2006, uh, in the case between State of Georgia versus Scott Winfield Davis, as to count number one, malice murder, we, the jury, find Scott Davis guilty. As to, scout, as to count number two, felony murder, we find the jury, we, the jury find Scott Davis guilty. And as to count number three, felony murder, we, the jury, find Scott Davis guilty. When I heard guilty in this case, uh, probably the first thing that came to mind was David Coffin Sr. And the reason that I say that is because, um, you know, he came down to Atlanta before and he was here during the trial. And it was so clear that he had such great love and admiration for his son. Justice in our minds has been done and we can go forward from here. And that's what my family and I all wish. The jury, in this case, looked at Scott Davis' stories and had to conclude they just didn't make any sense. And they chose to believe Megan and not Scott because Scott's telling this story that she told him about the gun. But he's also told these other two stories that stretch credibility. Davis, uh, you've been found guilty of the crime charge and I sent you to life in prison. Yes. Your Honor, I have nothing but sympathy, and I feel nothing but empathy for the Coffin family and their loss. However, I have maintained my innocence throughout this, and I still maintain my innocence. I feel as though this process has been unfair to me from the very beginning. I wish nothing but happiness and goodness to the Coffin family. But again, I want to emphasize that I am innocent of these charges and I plan to go forward and try to appeal this process. Scott Davis wrote me a letter there on appeal at the time. So he's reaching out to me in hopes that I will investigate the case. But there's nothing to prove here, okay, from my standpoint. The other, there wasn't enough other evidence that would have exonerated him that much at the trial. And I was hired uh, after the trial was over to participate in the new trial motion, which is a hearing held after trial, and then did the direct appeal to the Supreme Court of Georgia. I was not shocked that the Supreme Court, you know, upheld the conviction, that they affirmed the conviction. So I think the uphill battle really was not so much that it was a terrible, it was terribly unfair that the defense lost access to all this evidence is there was no remedy. because the evidence is never gonna be found. So even though it took quite a while for it to happen, it might have been slow, deliberate, but in the end, justice was served. 
Scott Davis is currently serving his life sentence at Phillips State Prison in Beaufort, Georgia. He still maintains his innocence. I'm Tamron Hall. Thanks for watching Someone They Knew. There you have it, another episode of the Court TV original production, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. New episodes of the show air every Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on Court TV. And you can see me on my show, Closing Arguments, weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern, where we look at the biggest legal stories across the country. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. 